All right, open up your Bibles, Genesis chapter 24, Genesis chapter 24. Uh, I want to talk about different ways that we find a godly spouse. Now, it is not easy to find a godly spouse in this culture. As I talk to more and more young people, that is like a very significant challenge. It actually creates quite a bit of desperation in young people. Questions like, um, will I ever really find somebody? Do I have to settle? Because the market seems to not be that great, if you will. Uh, I want to talk about online dating. This is interesting. Um, 20% of all new marriages... Um, happened because of online dating. Uh, you actually might hear stats that say 50%. That's more accurate to say it's 50% of relationships are actually emerging through online dating, but actually 20% of marriages are coming about because of uh, eHarmony.com or ChristianMingle.com. I don't know how many marriages happen through Tinder, but we'll go there. So, um, <laughs> so then about, actually still the stats are out, about 60% of marriages um, are connected because of friends and communities. Uh, and that's where actually to date still most marriages happen. Uh, I, I'm not one of those naysayers on online dating. Um, I think you have to exercise wisdom, and that would be my two, my two cents for you. But every culture has a, a means and a method for finding a spouse. I want to share with you three, I think, fairly disturbing ways that um, some cultures around the world uh, find uh, someone to date, court, engage, or marry. 19th century Austria. Uh, here's what um, eligible ladies would do. Uh, they, would, they would have these town dances. And again, you knew the people in the town, so it's not like you went to a dance and saw a girl that you're like, oh, what's her name? Like, you knew who the people were. So uh, if you were a young woman, you would take a slice of an apple and you'd put it in your armpit and you would keep your arm closed throughout the whole dance. And you would dance, 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 dance the night away and whatever kind of music they do in 19th century Austria. Well, you get to the end of the night, right? And let's say there's this guy. You've had your eyes on this dude for some time. Let's call him Hans, right? That feels like a good 19th century Austrian name. And you see Hans, right? And, and, uh, and his lederhosen or whatever you call those things. And you're like, do they even wear that in Austria? I have no idea. I'm just making up cultural ideas here. And... Uh, and so you go to Hans, and you're like, you're like, I really, I've been, I've been thinking about this guy. I really like him. And so at the end of the night, you go and you take this apple out from underneath your armpit, and you give it to him. <laughs> you germaphobes, like you're like, thank God I'm American. Anyways, so here, here's what would happen. So they would, they, the the woman would take this apple and she'd give it to the guy. And if he was like, you know what, I've been watching you too. This thing feels good. He'd take the apple, he'd eat it, and they would be, I know. <laughs> What I want so badly is a camera right here just to look at. I saw one woman go. <laughs> so good. It gets darker. There are darker, there are darker things that happen around the world. Uh, in Taiwan in the, uh, up to the 1930s, there's um, a little tribal village. And, uh, and, and here's what they would do. Um, the men of the tribal village would go out to war and they would kill these other men. And so what they would do is they would behead the men and they would try to take home as many heads as they possibly could. Now, this is like prized possession. Okay? Like, these are sacred. These are pure gold. Like, like, like in, our, in our culture, you drive up in a Maserati and all the ladies are like, he's got money. In this culture, you come up with a bunch of like, heads, right? The ladies are like, this guy's fine. I want to go on a date with him. So, so the dudes would come and then they would actually present the heads to the women. And the women were like, 
oh, he's so good looking. And then they would somehow be attracted to this. And then what they would do is they actually kept the heads. And like in their home, they would keep them like on display. Like, look how awesome my man is. So, you know, like on Facebook, what you ladies do, it's your husband's birthday. You're like, my man's so cool. He like did the dishes and he loves me really well. And, and like these ladies, if they were on Facebook, they'd be like, look at all these dead heads and look at that artery. And it would be, it'd be discur- disturbing. All right. Most disturbing is, uh, this is actually very normal, um, all throughout history, the way you would get a spouse is through kidnapping. Now, not like the kind of kidnapping we think of, but here, here's what would happen. Your tribe would go to war with another tribe, uh, you kill all their men, and you take their wives and their daughters, and then you would make them be your wives uh, in your village. So you'd find all the single men, you'd give that to them, different culture, different language, different background, different everything, right? And then these women would just become a part of this new culture. And where were they going to go? All of their former men are dead and gone. And, and often in these tribal warfares, they would obliterate the other tribes so there's no semblance left of them. Now, aren't you glad you don't live in any of these cultures, right, Village Church? Like, this is disturbing. Now, let's draw. I thought there'd be like a round of applause at that point. Like, yeah, we're so glad we don't have to eat stinky <laughs> apples out of armpits. And, uh, but... No matter where you're at in the world, uh, all throughout uh, Jewish history and Christian history, um, the people of God have, I think, one unique uh, uh, thing that sets us apart in terms of how we come together as potential husbands and wives in terms of how we date. The godliest young men and women, what they do is they engage godly parents or spiritual mentors in their relationship. It's one of the most fundamentally different things about how godly men and women date, engage, court, get married, whatever you want to call it. What we do is we bring godly parents or spiritual mentors into our life, and we give them access. Now, let's diagnose a problem. Um, Part of growing up in American culture is that this is deep in our system, this way of thinking, and it is very individualistic. It is my life. Nobody tells me what to do. I'll figure out what to do. It's my relationship. It's my future. Mom and dad, pay for my wedding, and and make sure you, I can borrow money from you, and you're always available to babysit, but don't tell me what to do with the woman I marry, right? And it's just very very individualistic. And so in the Christian community, we've bought into this lie that it's my life, it's my marriage, it's my relationship, and I've got good news and bad news. Uh, The good news is that it's never just about you. The bad news is it's never just about you. Everything you do with your marriage profoundly affects your mom and your dad, your brothers, your sisters, your friend groups, your Christian community, your local church, your community groups, your small groups, whatever. Like, it's not like you live in a vacuum and that you get to do whatever you want, whenever you want. It's my life. I get to choose things. Godly men and women surround themselves with older, more mature, godly men and women. They open up their lives and they say, speak truthfully into my life. We understand we are men and women under authority. We reject American lies that say, I'm 18, therefore I'm an adult, and you, dad, you, mom, have no authority over my life in any way, shape, or form. We reject these individualistic lies, and we understand we're in community. 
And it's not just faux community where I show up on a church on a Sunday morning. No, when my life goes to pits, it's the people of God who have to swoop in and be there to protect me and to lift me out. It is my mom and dad and my brothers and sisters who show up. It's never just about you. It is never just about you. And when the people you love have wisdom and insight, godly wisdom and insight, we as single people, I'm married, but we who are single, we say, I will listen and I will bend the knee to good, godly wisdom. This is totally countercultural. Totally counterintuitive for the individualistic mindset, but this is what sets a young, godly man or woman apart. We don't buy the cultural lies that it's all about me, I'm in this alone, it's my life. We understand, no, we live in community, and my community knows me, and I'm going to invite my community into these relationships. Now, I'm going to share with you something that is going to guide most of our time this morning. It's a phrase I just Uh, Whether you're married or single, I think this just applies to you, and I'm going to say it over and over again to kind of give us a a ground level here. Your primary calling in life is not to be married, but to follow Jesus and to build his kingdom. Your primary call in life is not to be married, but to follow Jesus and to build his kingdom. God may want you to be married. God may not want you to be married. Your primary call in life is to follow Jesus and to build his kingdom. And who you marry should amplify that calling. Here's the problem that I find is we navigate a lot, most of young Christian couples. They're getting married for happiness. And most godly men and women who have been there, done that, here's what I know. Happiness is a fight whether you marry the right person or the wrong person. Happiness is a lifelong fight that every Christian has to go through. We don't marry, though, ultimately for happiness. We marry so that we can better follow Jesus and build the kingdom of God. And any human being who gets in the way of that isn't the right human being for you. Now, here's the problem. You're young, you're dating, you're like really into this person, you have a connection, and deep down inside you know they are not helping you follow Jesus or building his kingdom, and here's what you're going to be tempted to do. You're going to be tempted to isolate yourself from good, godly parents and mentors, because what they have to say might lead you ultimately away from that person. What I want to tell you is what separates really godly young men and women apart throughout Christian history has been our willingness to bring godly men and women and godly parents over our lives to speak truthfully about whether this relationship accomplishes that. Does it help us follow Jesus and build his kingdom? All right, Genesis 24. Here's what's happened. Abraham has died. Uh, Not Abraham. Abraham's wife has died. I'm sorry. Abraham's wife has died. And Abraham's days are coming to an end. His death is very near. And if you remember last week, we're in the series on Isaac. And what separated Isaac, what made him so important, is really not much that he did other than this. He received personally the faith, the promises of God from his dad. He owned them. And then he gave them away to the next generation. Like that is one of the most important things any follower of God could ever do, you personally receive and own the faith, the promises of God, and then you hand them off to the next generation. Like this, this is one of the most important things. There is a problem in Genesis 24. The problem is that Isaac is 40 years old and single and seems to have no uh, burden um, to find a wife. Now, I want to just say this again for your benefit. Not all of you are called to be married, right? Right? Now, this is where you say, amen. Amen. 
Not all of you called to be married. Statistically, actually, most of you will get married, and that's, that's a fine, good thing. But not everybody's called to be married. Isaac is different. God made a promise over Abraham and Isaac's life that required him to be married and to have children for that promise to be fulfilled. Okay? So I, 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 what I don't want you to do is to, is to hear this. Well, God's will for Isaac was that I'm going to have a wife, so therefore God's will for your life is that you're going to have a wife. Now we're saying... But God had a very specific promise over the life of Isaac. It required a wife. Abraham is about to die, and he's like, oh, no. My son is 40 and single. He doesn't seem to be, I don't know, burdened to find a wife. So maybe we got to do something about this. And so Genesis 24 uh, is actually this beautiful story that is written to show us what to look for in a godly wife. Now, what's interesting is that so much of the life of Isaac, he doesn't do anything. Uh, but actually, almost all of the stories of Isaac's life, other people are the main players. And so even though this whole story is about Isaac, he's not the hero of the story. The hero of the story is Rebecca, this amazing, young, godly woman, woman that the scriptures just lay out for us so that all women throughout Christian and Jewish history could look back at this woman and say, now that is a woman that I want to be like. Now what's interesting too is some of you might be thinking, I'm preaching on this because it's International Women's Day or Women's Weekend. I'm not. Actually, this is literally the text we're in today, and I love how God just brings stuff like that together. Uh, but one of the fun things about preaching through books of the Bible is sometimes you just can't control the subjects that are coming up, and, uh, and so this is what comes up. So I want to just encourage you godly women. Uh, I want to encourage you young women uh, to aspire to something um, even more beautiful. I want to take a moment and talk to every one of you who are older. Uh, it always happens. So I'm just going to call it out, and none of you are going to say this to me. Older people say, well, I'm already married. That sermon really wasn't relevant for me, so I'm just going to look on Facebook. I'm not really going to pay attention. Blah, 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 blah. Do you want to make an impact for the next generation? Then get your brain around right thinking and right principles about how to help them date, engage, and marry. Help them think biblically. Get your brain around what does a godly woman look like. If you're counseling a younger man, have a clear-headed picture of here are the kind of things I want you to look for in a woman or vice versa. Here are the things I want you to look for in a godly man. Like if we're going to really make an impact to the next generation, they need godly men and women, moms and dads and spiritual mentors to be clear-headed, to be able to look back at our own stories and say, here's where I've totally messed up. Don't do what I did here. Here's what happened. But despite my personal testimony, I'm going to stand on the word of God and I want to give you wisdom from God's word. So part of this is an opportunity for you to say, all right, A, here's a godly woman, but B, like I need to surround myself with wisdom and insight that I can hand off to the next generation. So passages like this are written for two big reasons. Number one, um, the nation of Israel, the people of God, it's being birthed through the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And there's a, a bigger narrative happening in Genesis that's culminating ultimately with Jesus, the Messiah. Okay? Uh, there's a second thing that, that passages of Scripture like Genesis 24 do for us. The New Testament says they're written for our instruction. They're written so that we might look at these characters and we might learn from the good things they've done and the huge errors they have made. So verses 1 through 9 is going to be some context. So look down, Genesis 24, verse 1 through 9. It'll also be on the screen if you don't have a Bible with you. Now, Abraham, verse 1, he was old, well advanced in years. And the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. Everything this guy did turned to gold. Abraham said to his servant, 
the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, he said this, put your hand under my thigh. Thigh is um, actually a euphemism for genitalia. And we shake hands, right? (laughs) This is a different way of making a promise. Again, aren't you glad you live now and not then, right? (laughs) So they're, they're, they're about to make a promise. And whatever it is, it's going to be a big deal, okay? Put your hand under my thigh that I may make you swear by the Lord. You cross this promise. This is what I'll do to you. The God of heaven and the God of earth, hear this, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughter of the Canaanites. If you violate this singular principle, you're toast. Like, I need you to know this. This is of the utmost importance to me. The Canaanites among whom I dwell. So Abraham, he left Mesopotamia, a little place called Ur, traveled hundreds, 900 miles-ish east, west to Canaan, which is now Israel. Canaan is the promised land. Before it was Israel, it was Canaan. He is there in Canaan now. He's looking at all the evil and atrocity around him. He's looking at the foreign false gods, and he says, whatever you do, do not allow my son to marry one of these Canaanite women. But here's what I want you to do. But I, you will go to my country and to my kindred, my family, where I know them and their values and their culture and their doctrine. And, and I want you to take a wife for my son, Isaac. Now, Abraham, he needs to protect Isaac from two, two traps that, ev- honestly, every generation of me- young men and women need to be protected from. Here's the first one. Isaac cannot, cannot, cannot marry a woman from a different faith system. This is not about race or ethnicity. This is about theology. This is about values. This is of utmost importance to the people of God. And sometimes the people of God, we get really desperate. In our desperation for things like marriage above following Jesus, we do dumb things. You'll hear me say at Village all the time, because it's probably the story of like half of my life under 25, desperate people do dumb things. And so we as the people of God, we're not a desperate people. We are a grounded people. We are a people who wait. But desperate people, they do dumb things. Now, when I was uh, single, I made this list. It was like 16 or 18 attributes that I required to have in a wife. Uh, I had a very specific theological grid she had to fit into, right? Um, I know, I'm a geek, so it's a problem. But uh, I was like, listen, like, you have to be of this theological persuasion. Otherwise, it's like, it, it like deals off. I don't care how beautiful you are. Um, you have to want to be a pastor's wife. Like, I knew that I wanted to be a pastor, and I've known enough guys in ministry whose wives just kind of weren't all in that I was like, you know, I don't want that. I want somebody who is with me, arm in arm, has a passion for ministry and, and the Lord. And so when I met Brienne, she shunned me for like four months, wouldn't even speak to me. Like, it was, it was dark. Like, it was not a good thing. Like, I'd say hi to her, and she put her head down and walked by, and, and uh, it took me a while to get to know um, her, her heart. Uh, but why, why no Canaanites? Uh, to help you understand why no Canaanites, why no people from other faiths, uh, let's contrast a Canaanite versus a Mesopotamian. So I want you to imagine if you're in Mesopotamia, this is the birthplace of humanity. Uh, this is the global center of civilization. Uh, cultured cities, the best food in the world, beautiful women, any religion and lifestyle you want without judgment, and seemingly without consequence. Basically, this is Las Vegas on steroids. And if you had a son or you had a daughter, uh, the last thing you would ever say to them is, I want you to go move to Las Vegas, and I want you to like, live there for a while, and I, you're better than that. You'll never get infected by that culture. 
Not true, is it? You know better than to send your children into dark places like that. Canaan was different. Canaan was a place of tribal warfare, very underdeveloped, uh, vile and dark gods and goddesses. Uh, I would think of the hills of Kentucky. Think of the movie Deliverance, right? Like you can't unsee it, right? So here's, here's Abraham. He's like, listen, I live in Canaan. These people, no offense to all you Kentucky people, but uh, I know some of you are like, <laughs> uh, but, but these people are not okay. But he also remembers he lived in Mesopotamia for, for 75 years. He understands what's over there. That's a different kind of, of draw and lure to the heart. So he sends this servant over and he says, listen, um, you are not allowed to let my son marry a Canaanite woman. But, but also we're going to see this. Uh, I don't want to marry somebody, just random girl from Mesopotamia either. You need to go to somebody who's from my kindred. Verse 5 says, the servant said to him, perhaps... Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? And the answer is absolutely, absolutely not. Never do that. The second um, uh, uh, trap that Isaac could fall into is this. He must never compromise the promise out of desperation. Never. Never, 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 never. Isaac, you have been given a promise by God that you are going to marry a woman and you're going to hand down the faith, the promises of God to the next generation. You are not to marry a Canaanite. You are not to marry somebody from a different faith. And I understand you're going to get to a certain age and desperation will creep in. But listen, don't do it. Let's come back to this statement again. Your primary calling in life is not to be married, but to follow Jesus and to build his kingdom. Your primary calling in life. But here's the problem. Isaac's calling in life, the way he followed Jesus, if you will, the way he followed God, was literally to be married. And so, like, although I say that to you, for him, I would have to say this. Isaac, your primary calling in life is to follow God by getting married to a godly woman and building his kingdom. Uh, When I went to Moody Bible Institute, there was a, a degree that many women were pursuing. The degree was called the MRS, right? So I heard this. Uh, Heidi was her name. And I said, what are, you, what are you here for? And she goes, I'm here for my MRS. And I was like, Masters of Relational Science, Masters of Religious Services. I'm like, I'm, like, I'm trying to put any, anything in master there. And, and lo and behold, like, it took me like a week. And I was like, oh, this is, I get it. I'm a moron. That took me, that took me longer. But um, literally her ambition in life was just to find a dude. And she structured her whole life out of this awkward desperation. And I'm just like, who, who, who wants that? And apparently some guy wanted that. So oh, I, want to, I want to draw your attention to verses 6, 7, and 8. Sorry, like candor just comes out sometimes. Abraham in verse 6 said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. Look at verse 8. Only you must not under any circumstances Take my son back there. I don't care if you're 40 or 14. A young man doesn't have the ability to go back to Mesopotamia, to those cities, and remain unscathed. He knows this. He's trying to protect him. He understands that a godly man, there are some places a godly man just can't go, and this is going to be one of those places. He probably knows that for Isaac, the temptation to go to a place where you can fulfill all of your desires, all of your dreams, do whatever you want without consequence, it's too much for him. When you look at verse 7, though, here, Abraham says, says something really interesting to him that I think uh, you might just be tempted to gloss over, but for me, it's actually one of the most meaningful parts of the story. He says in the middle of verse 7, to your offspring I will give this land, uh, and he will send, 
an angel before you. So Abraham is talking to his servant. He's telling his servant, I want you to go to my family's land. I want you to find a woman there. And this angel will go before you. What's interesting is that every time that Abraham has had an interaction with an angel, it was the angel of the Lord. Six of them prior to this right here. And here's what Abraham knows. The angel of the Lord is committed to keeping God's promises. And the angel of the Lord, we know this, is the pre-incarnate Jesus. Isn't that so cool? And so Abraham's experience to date is this. Listen, God made a promise, and he is serious about this promise, and all I know is that there's an angel, and that whenever there's a promise to be fulfilled, that angel shows up. I remember when I was about to kill my son Isaac, and then the angel of the Lord, Jesus, shows up and stops it, and the angel of the Lord is just there, and he had this understanding that there was this angel of the Lord who was just executing and fulfilling the promises of God. So Abraham's about to die, and he's like, listen, the angel of the Lord is going to be with you. Like, he's never not let me down, and whenever it's come to crunch time, like, the angel of the Lord, he just shows up. Verse 9 says this, so the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and he swore to him concerning this matter. That was all introduction, by the way. Ready? Don't worry, it's not going to be too long. I want to share with you a few things that the the text is going to highlight about Rebecca. Rebecca is a godly woman, and this is a, a, a chapter of scripture that God has given to us to tell all young women, especially everywhere, These are the attributes of a young, godly woman, but they apply to everyone. Men, you're looking for a godly woman? Godly women are found in godly places. Verse 10 says this, Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and he went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. What's so cool is that this is actually the city of Abraham's brother. This is family. He goes not just to any random city in Mesopotamia, not to the center of all these big cities of civilization, but he goes to the place where he knows that people have the right culture and values that Isaac could be put together with. It says this in verse 11, and he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening. Like, this is getting pretty specific. The time when women go out to draw the water. Let me, let me explain to you the women of Nahor versus the women of Canaan. If you were trying to find a wife in Canaan, that's like going to Tinder.com. Now, here's what's really funny. Last service, I think there were a few people who actually met on Tinder and ended up getting married, which is hilarious. But that's what it's like. Canaan is like, I guess some good things can happen there. So uh, going to Canaan is like going to Tinder.com. Going to Nahor is like going to ChristianMingle.com, right? Very different kinds of people go to each of these sites, do they not, by and large, right? And so godly women typically are going to be found in godly places. And here's what he knows. I could go anywhere in Mesopotamia, but this is a place where I know the women are going to share our family's values and their culture. Abraham knew where to go. I want you to hear me because Abraham knew what he was looking for. When you know what you're looking for, you will know exactly where to go. If you make a list of the kind of man or the kind of woman that you want to marry, right? Now ask yourself, where would a person with these attributes typically be found? And by and large, the the godly man is going to realize, well, probably I should go to the place where people who are described like this are are going to go. Number two, godly women are found in godly places doing faithful things. And he said, the servant says this, O Lord God, he's praying, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love. Do you see the word steadfast love? 
Put that in your brain. Just keep it there. It's going to come up. We're going to come back to that later in the sermon. Show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Why? Why this activity? Because, listen, Abraham is a really filthy rich guy. Filthy rich people can tend, if they're not careful and really, really, really intentional, can raise really spoiled brats, right? And so in this culture, you have these women, and they'd sit back, and they wouldn't do anything, they'd be pampered all the time, right? And this was like their world, and here's what Abraham knew. I need to find a godly woman, not a rich, pampered woman. And the way you find that is you find a woman who can work. And this is the place where the women would serve faithfully. It was hard work. It, was, it meant they were part of a family. They were part of a community. It meant they could be trustworthy. It meant they knew how to work. Let me, let me give you like a, maybe a practical illustration, two of them now. If I'm looking for a godly woman now, which again, I'm married, so I'm not, but this is for your insight, okay? If I'm looking for a godly woman, I want to know, like, if you're graduated high school, I want to know that you have a job and you can work. Like, that's actually a high value. Like, I, I want to know that you know how to work. You don't want to, here's why I want to I know that. Because life is work, right? Getting married is hard work. Having kids is hard work. Motherhood is hard work. Grandparenting is hard work. Work is hard work. Life is hard work, right? And if you can't work hard, which by the way is one of the most valuable assets for a young man or young woman, is you got to know how to work because if you can't work, you're never going to make it. And then one person in a marriage is always going to have to pull the brunt of the work if one person won't do it. And so here's what we know. Like, I want to know that I can find a young woman who actually has a work ethic. Uh, let me give you another thing, practically, what I think this would mean. Um, find me a young woman who works hard in church as well, who serves really, really faithfully and really, really well. I'm going to look at a woman and say, hey, where do you work and where do you serve? Where do you work and where do you serve? These are two simple litmus tests that will raise a godly woman above va- the vast majority of, of, of Christian women. Even the Proverbs 31 woman, which is, which is written in this beautiful way to highlight femininity, to highlight the attributes that God is so pleased with. Here's what Proverbs 31 says. She seeks wool and flax and she works with willing hands. She considers a field and buys it with the fruit of her hands. She plants a vineyard. We'll keep going. Abraham's servant, he continues to pray. Verse 14. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, quote, Please let down your jar that I may drink, and whom I shall say, Drink, and I will water the camels. Let her be the one you, God, have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown, what's the word? Steadfast love to my master. Keep that in your brain. We're going to come back to it. Verse 15. Before he even finished speaking, behold, Rebecca. Now the name. Love the name. The name, uh, in its most literal sense, means something like a noose. <laughs> but here's the context. Here's the, the, the concept is like this. It's this idea that she is so beautiful that the men who see her, they're like tied around the neck and they just can't let it go. Like there's something so captivating about her. That's the idea that she's so beautiful that she is captivating. It says, before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebecca, this beautiful, captivating woman who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. Look what she's doing. Faithfully working. This is not an entitled, lazy, rich girl. This is a hardworking, calluses on her hand, trustworthy girl. Now, 
Abraham's servant is like watching. He's like, okay, she's really beautiful and she's working hard, right? Let's, let's see what else is going on here. Number four, godly women are found in godly places doing faithful things, trusting in God. Here's what verse 16 says. Now, the young woman was very attractive in appearance. A maiden, meaning she's young, who had known, who no man had known. Now, she went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Now, here's what this is speaking about directly, her sexual history. Now, here's what's really valuable, I think, for the vast majority of Christian men and women who are not married. The vast majority of you have a sordid sexual history. There are some who don't, but what we have learned as we have entered into premarital counseling with couple after couple after couple is that you do have a sexual history that you massively regret. My greatest concern for this relationship right now, the one I'm counseling with, is not all the stuff you've done in the past. It's what you're doing now. If you're a follower of Christ, here's what I know. You have a lot of regret, and the shed blood of Jesus Christ covers all of your and mine massive failures sexually or otherwise. Now, here's what I want to know. In this relationship, I want to know in this relationship, are you exercising self-control? Are you so desperate that you're utilizing your body and exploiting his weakness so that you can have the experience of feeling loved or desired? Do you have the self-control to respect and honor this guy now? Because respect and honor in marriage, by the way, is proven before marriage. He looks at her, and, and in this culture, in this time, she was clearly a virgin. You didn't just go up to her and ask that. There were ways that you can tell visually by looking at them, things they were wearing, things they would be doing, that would show you that she was still sexually pure. But I want you to remember this. I want to take a step back. In case you've forgotten, one of the most important things here, your primary calling in life is not to be married, but to follow Jesus and to build his kingdom. One of the reasons we stay sexually pure is not so that we don't have to face our husband one day. We do it because we're following Jesus Christ. So this, this is so important because you may never find a husband. And what happens to so many women in their late 20s and their 30s is they realize, man, almost every guy expects sexual favors. They do. It's real. It's everywhere. It's so frustrating. And so they start to get desperate, and they held themselves for their husbands only to realize the vast majority of men haven't preserved themselves for them, and so they start to compromise. If you're doing it for a man, I've watched person after person, man after man and woman after woman begin to, to violate their conscience and the word of God because they saved it because they thought he would, and when they realize most aren't, they stop. You don't do it for a man. You do it for the Lord. And that's your primary calling, to build his kingdom, to follow him for his sake. Godly women, number five, are found in godly places, doing faithful things, trusting in God with a servant heart. No pressure, ladies, right? Wait till you see a godly man. That's a, that's a whole other sermon that's way longer than this one. Anybody can appear godly from a distance. Anybody can go online and put anything they want on Facebook or Instagram or whatever else. Do you ever see like somebody that you really know well and they put up like this picture of them in church or they put up this, like, this Bible verse and you're like, no, 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 no. Like you don't get to do that. Like, like that's not consistent. Like I appreciate like the duplicity and the attempt to like appear as if you're something you're not, but we all, we all know what's really going on there. You know what I mean? And, and you have these like, these, uh, which is probably most of us in this room putting forward, I don't know, a front on, online that's not real. Anyone? Okay, good. So um, before we get too judgy of them, I think that's everyone. Um, 
But you should be able to tell fairly quickly. Like, you should be able to have one or two conversations with somebody, and the, the foundations of their character should be clear. Their passion for Jesus should be clear. Their desire to follow God should be clear. You, you go on most dates, and I talk to a lot of men, and they'll tell you they can tell very quickly whether a woman is desperate or trusting. It's very easy, and it's very, very quick that you can tell that. All right, here's what happens. Um, verse 17, uh, it says this, Then the servant ran to meet her. I love this. He's like, you're beautiful. You're hardworking. I gotta, I gotta like, get this. Someone else is gonna get this girl. Um, he runs and meets her, and he says, please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, drink, my lord, and she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. Now, the beauty of Hebrew narrative, the, the beauty of it is in the nuances and the details and the way the words flow in and out, and the implication here is that she quickly served him, that she is quick to help. She's got a heart of compassion here. Verse 19, when, when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. Completely unprompted, servant-hearted. Like, is this girl's heart on the table here? It's amazing. She, so she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water. And she drew for all the camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey and not. Do you know how many gallons of water it would have taken to feed all of his camels? Low end, and this is just trying to be conservative, 150 gallons. Typically, this would be about 250 gallons. 25 gallons per camel, 10 camels. 25 times 10 mathematicians equals 250 gallons. That's pretty unbelievable. Have you ever tried to pull one gallon out of a well, right? right? Maybe it's a two-gallon bucket. That's even heavier. One, two, three. And it says here, which I love, verse 21, the man gazed at her in silence, right? Like, how long was this gaze? Like, this girl's amazing. That's one, two, three, four. Wow, like this girl, her arms are incredible. And Verse 22, when the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing half a shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing 10 gold shekels and said, please tell me whose daughter you are. I mean, this guy's throwing gold at her. This was a normal day. She wakes up. She's just doing her faithful work, providing for her family, being the daughter she's supposed to be, having integrity. And you just never know when the Lord is going to drop like some crazy experience in your life that's going to bring you together with your spouse. Like what she didn't know is that the Lord, Jesus Christ, was orchestrating this from hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles away for a long time. Like the Lord set his mind mind on this young faithful woman, and he looked at Isaac, and he's like, that guy, this girl, we're going to orchestrate this incredible process. Please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? And she said to him, I'm the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. I know Nahor. He's related to Abraham. I can't believe this. Your family, this is exactly what I've been praying for. She added, we have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. Verse 26, the man bowed his head and he worshiped the Lord. He said, blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken what? His steadfast love. This is the Hebrew word has said, and this is the faithful covenant keeping love of God. God made a promise to Abraham and to Isaac and despite distance and impossible odds, they didn't have to fall into desperation because the Lord Jesus Christ always keeps his promises. 
And so the Lord Jesus Christ, unbeknownst to this 40-year-old man, is orchestrating this unbelievably beautiful woman who is going to meet legitimately some of his deepest soul needs. And this whole time, here's what you're reminded of. You're instructed by Rebecca. You see a father's heart for his son. You learn about dating and engagement and some values of a godly woman. And then God, again, is always the hero of the story. Our good, faithful, promise-keeping God. And then you ask, okay, Pastor Michael, but what about the guys? Don't you want to, like, tell the guys to rise up? I'm just going to preach the text, man, so this is, like, pretty simple. There are two things that are highlighted about Isaac. Go to verse 62, and here's what it says. Number one, he is a faithful worker. Verse 62 says, Now Isaac had returned from Beir Lahai Roy and was dwelling in the Negev. What's so important about this is, is that he's in the wilderness. He's in the desert. He, he's taking care of actually the land that was given to his father. He's being faithful. Like he is doing what he's supposed to be doing. He's working with animals and all the rest. Verse 63 says this, Isaac went out to meditate. The second thing we know about him is he's not just a hard worker, but the dude prays. Uh, But the dude has a relationship with God. He's 40 years old. The dude isn't desperate. He's not doing dumb things. He's not compromising his life. He is doing what the Lord has faithfully called him to do, and he's maintaining his relationship with the Lord. And that's what we got for the guys. Work your rears off faithfully. Don't be desperate and build your relationship with God. Watch him orchestrate some incredible things. Verse 64 tells us kind of how all this came together. Rebecca lifted up her eyes. When she saw Isaac, remember this is a long journey, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, who is that man walking in the field to meet us? And the servant said, it is my master. He must have been so excited. So she took her veil, she covered herself, and the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife. And this is, I think, my favorite part of the story. And he loved her. This is not sexual love. It's not even covenant love. This is ahava. This is a deep soul connection. This is a friendship knitting of the soul that is one of the most powerful, long-term, emotional, relational experiences two people can have for each other. This is the kind of love that David, King David, had for Saul's son, Jonathan, this friendship love that knit their hearts together and bound them to one another. And really, here's what we have. Two not desperate people waiting faithfully as the Lord orchestrates through other people. And we find this is that the Lord actually provided something for them that met those deepest desires of their soul because they didn't grab things and take them into their own hands. And it says this, so Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. All right, I have a handful of so what's. I had about 37 of them, so you're welcome. I sure missed the six. It's like we're talking about dating and engagement. I'm like full of opinions. And, and uh, Number one, no decision will impact your ability to be a conduit of the promises of God like the person you marry. There is no decision that will affect your ability to follow God and to build his kingdom like this one. Choose wisely and carefully. Marriage, number two, is a communal affair despite anything anybody says to you, all the lies you believe, your desire for autonomy, the dysfunction of your family, right? Who you marry is never just about you. Don't get me wrong, it's primarily about you, but the decision to marry ripples 
throughout your family and your mom and your dad and your brothers and sisters and your church community, and it will profoundly affect not just them, but all of the children you can't see yet. Here's what godly men uh, and women and parents and mentors, here's what they see when they see the two of you. They see future parents, 50 years old, trying to raise children for the sake of Jesus Christ and to build the kingdom. That's what we see. You're looking at, do we get along? And we're looking at, can you build God's kingdom together? Now, don't get me wrong. I don't want to minimize it. But the vast majority of young people are not seeing 30 years down the road. Do you want to know why? You haven't been 30 years down the road. You don't know what to look for. But God has given you godly parents or godly spiritual leaders or mentors to say, listen, I've seen there, been there, done that. And let me tell you, like this person, like, do you really want them raising your future daughter? You want this man every day speaking into the heart, to the mind, to the soul of that young woman. This man is going to develop her God concept. Is that what you want? Gentlemen, you're going to have a a young son, and you have all of this vision for this young son of yours. Is this the woman you want forming and shaping him as a man when you're gone at work? Is this the woman that you want him running to? Is this the kind of woman that you want him to marry and to raise your grandchildren with? Like, these are the kind of thoughts that your community is thinking about your marriage. We are wired to think this way because we're on this side of what you're going through. We are a great gift to you. Number three, not all parents should speak into prospective marriages equally. Some of you, your parents don't love God. They don't have your best interest in mind, and you've got to use discernment on that. But number four, someone of great spiritual maturity must be speaking directly into your relationship, into your life. So the godly young man and woman, here's what we do. We open up our relationship because there should be no secrets. There should be nothing to hide uh, right? The reason we run and hide is because there's secrets, but we're not supposed to have those. We're not taking things into our own hands. We're not going outside of the boundaries of God's word. We're not desperate. We are controlled, self-controlled people with a vision to follow God and to build his kingdom. So we live lives like this, right? So we open up our relationships and we say, take a look. There is nothing I'm afraid of or ashamed of. And then ideally, if there is something you're ashamed of, you have what's called a Christian community of spiritually mature men and women who can speak with love and grace into your failures. Because let me tell you this, I don't know a single young couple who nailed it. I, can, I, I, I guarantee you, you put the godliest couple up in this room, and I'm going to tell you, like all of them have things they probably need to confess before they got married. Like you're, you're not looking at a bunch of people who are like, perfection or you're done. You're looking at a bunch of people who have made a lot of mistakes and the grace of God has covered us in profound ways and they want to come alongside of you and help you follow Jesus Christ and bring him glory. Number five, so many lies. Don't buy the lies. I don't want my parents' marriage. Nobody wants their parents' marriage. That's weird, right? <laughs> Just because you don't want their, their marriage doesn't mean they're dumb. It doesn't mean they don't have a lot of regret or wisdom. It doesn't mean they don't have a ton to offer you. Sometimes the people with the most broken marriage, right, they've learned the most and they want to protect you from their errors. You just don't understand us. Really? Come on. This is what people say, by the way, when they have secrets and they don't want to be challenged or exposed. Just don't say stuff like this. It's dumb. We all see through it, right? You build up your walls. We do understand you. If you're our child, we raised you. If you're in the church community, we've watched you grow from a little child. We probably know you better than you think you do. And by the way, all the parents talked about you for years anyways and all your struggles, so we know about it anyways. All right. (laughs) 
it's my life. Again, this, these are like these dumb phrases that people say, you know, and they're like, that's their way of saying, listen, we got stuff we're not proud of. We're not going to repent, so stay out. Don't do that. Like, we see through it. This, is, uh, this last one is advice that, that, people, that non-Christians give to Christians who are dating. You have no obligation to your parents or spiritual mentors. You're, not, you're you. It's your life. It's your future. You, they, you don't have to listen to them at all. And I want to say just, like, ignore all the dumb lies that come from this world, all the lies that emerge out of a culture of individualism, because, again, as we said earlier, it's never just about you. Number six, finally. God orchestrates singleness and great marriages in crazy ways. Trust him. I'm not against online dating. My gosh, Abraham went out of his way to do all this orchestrating, right? I'm not against blind dates. I think all that is great. Here's what we don't do. We're not desperate. We're not a desperate people. We are a grounded, self-controlled group of men and women who are drawn to desperation and then repent of it, and we believe that Jesus Christ forgave us. And then we struggle with it again, and then we come back. I get desperation. I get it. But that's not who I am. It's what I struggle with, but it's not who I am. And so we don't live out of this place of desperation. We live out of a place of trust. When you're desperate, we do dumb things. When you trust, you wait, and you watch the Lord do really amazing things. Last words. I don't know what, what God wants to do with your life. I don't know if it's singleness. I don't know if it's marriage. I don't know how long your husband or your wife are going to live. If you're a widow or a widower, I don't know how long that's going to last. I don't know if the Lord has another plan for your life. Here's what I do know. Your and my responsibility is to follow Jesus and to build the kingdom. And the Lord will begin to work and do amazing and incredible, wonderful, beautiful things. And you're going to get to the end and you're going to say, God gave you his said. God was faithful to you every single step of the way because of his covenant. Young people, single people, do nothing, nothing, nothing to jeopardize your ability to follow Jesus and build his kingdom. Nothing. Do not marry. Do not date. Whatever it is, if it's going to jeopardize that, don't do it. The spouse you choose will determine your every single day for the rest of your life. No pressure. Choose wisely. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we are such a funny people. We uh, know your word. We see it. We get excited by it. We even sit in a sermon in our heart burst with, with, with love for it in our chest. We hear good ideas, and we say yes, and yet we look back at the, at the reality of our life, and um, we just see so many desperate decisions. So it's in, that, it's in that tension that we just say, thank you for your spirit. Thank you for what you do in us. Thank you for how you are slowly forming Christ in us. Thank you for the shed blood of Jesus Christ who washes away the guilt and the condemnation of all of our sin for those who've trusted in Jesus. Thank you for godly men and women who've gone before us, the ones who've made great decisions and the ones who've learned from their terrible decisions and everything in between. Thank you for the church community that loves us and cares for us. Thank you for your word that instructs us. It doesn't just tell us the bigger story, but it tells us smaller stories and speaks into our everyday realities. Thank you that we don't live in countries where they cut off heads as a sign of affection or eating apples under people's armpits. I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for uh, the stories of 
Isaac and Rebecca and their love and their failures and their successes. God, I just read this story and I find myself so grateful for so many things, most of, most of all. Thank you for Jesus. You didn't just die for our sins, but you designed us and you are the grand orchestrator of things. And so we just are so grateful for your sovereignty over creation, over our lives, over your church. You're the head of the church, which means not just the building and not just the people, but the individuals in it. And so we, we love you and uh, are very grateful for your love and your leadership over our lives. I pray for each of the single people in this room. God, would you give them a spirit of trust and not of doubt? Would you help them, not necessarily get married, but would you help them follow you and build your kingdom? So Lord, we love you and we get to celebrate communion now and remember what you've done for us. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Amen.